Welcome to the No-Till Farmer Influencers and Innovators Podcast, brought to you by Crop Vitality and Thiosol, the original thiosulfate liquid fertilizer. I'm McCain Vogel, assistant editor of No-Till Farmer. For this episode, editor Frank Lesseter sits down with Grant Troop, a no-tiller and a longtime soil health specialist and consultant in Oxford, Pennsylvania. Troop talks about how he first got hooked on no-till and how he convinced traditional tillage farmers to switch to no-till as a consultant. Give me a little history. You you, uh, grow up in the area where you're farming now. What part of Pennsylvania is it in? Yeah, it's the southeast part of Pennsylvania, Lancaster County, which is always considered the garden spot of the world. Sure. Still is pretty good productive land for yeah, good rainfall, good soil. So that makes a lot of things happen in a positive yeah. way. Right. So you uh, live where you grew up? I do. i pretty close. I'm next county east, but I would say that's pretty much the same area, yes. So you've been a farmer and now you're a consultant. Tell me a little about your background in both of those. Well, I uh, started farming while I was actually still in college. That goes back quite a few years. As a family farm, it became available, so I started farming then. Farmed there until, oh, let me think, 99, and was actually out of farming for two years, and then had an opportunity to farm some land in, in Maryland and started farming south into Maryland instead of mm-hmm. in Lancaster County, and uh, been farming there ever since, still farming. And then the consulting business, back in the 70s, I worked for the Soil Conservation Service, it would have been then. Uh, NRCS now, and that kind of got me set up uh, thinking about managing soil. And of course, from a government perspective, it's all about you know holding the resource, not not so much about crop production. And and I wanted to see how I could blend the two together because I always felt if you manage the soil and water it right, uh, you were going to have the best opportunity to have high yield and also conserve and and hold the soil resource for future generations. So my thrust then became that. I went into industry after a stint with the Soil Conservation Service, Conservation District position. With farming, started a consulting business, uh, specializing in no-till. was sort of becoming the no-till go-to guy in the area, uh, particularly among the plain sect, the Amish. They were getting curious about whether or not they could farm that way. And developed a clientele and a business and uh, a speaking circuit here in the East and and just sort of led from one thing to another. Did a, a short time uh, as a no-till specialist with Penn State under a grant-written program. Uh, worked in six counties uh, as a no-till specialist, mainly focused on transitioning farmers from tillage operations to no-till. And we kind of looked at some of the things that made the transition successful and rapid versus, you know, the long time held opinion that if you go to no-till, you're going to have yield drag and it's going to be slow in the conversion. Sure. We, we tried to look at, well, what are the reasons for that? Why, what's different about the system? So we, we come up with a list of things that if you did, you didn't have that drag on yield. You didn't have that slow transition period. You, you took care of the problems yeah. right as you, right as you went into it. You know, over the years, that is, has further developed, you know, you, you constantly find things, well, okay, now if we'd done this from the beginning, uh, we could have gotten the no-till quicker again. There's more things you could do. So, 
So uh, how'd you get hooked on no-till? Well, uh, time efficiency. Um, I have had an uncle that I worked with that was a veterinarian, and uh, he had a limited time schedule for farming because he was a vet. I was in school and had various off-farm jobs while I was farming. So, again, it was time. Uh, it was soil conservation. In my youth, I was a pretty big wildlife enthusiast, and I thought, well, uh, worked soil is not very conducive to, to having wildlife around. So that, that kind of stuck in my crawl. Mm-hmm. And I hated seeing uh, muddy water. I hated seeing soil erosion, ditches, gullies. Rills um, were the bane of my existence. So I, uh, I looked at no-till as an opportunity to farm as close to nature as you can, and still be farming. So, if you had a prospective farmer come to you today, and he and you were talking to him, and you were trying to convert him to no-till, and he was concerned about the yield drag, what would you tell him? You mentioned earlier some practices would get you past the yield drag. What would they yeah, be? Yeah. Well. Historically, the way we looked at it, uh, there's a couple things. First off, uh, one is the pH of the soil. Mm-hmm. You need to correct pH. Uh, and, of course, going into no-till, if, if you just stop tillage and you have a, a really low pH, or for that matter, a really high pH, you can't really rapidly address that without doing some mixing. So the thought was always, well, let's let's do that mixing and, and then – go to no-till the next year. Sure. And there's some practicality to that, but I found for the most part, most farmers that are converting, they don't really have soil pHs that are far that far out that you can't just stop tillage and put your liming material on the top and get where you want to go. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, if they are, they haven't been doing a very good job of farming to begin with, and no-till isn't going to help them probably if they don't even have their pH anywhere close. But that was one thing. Uh, another was nutrient availability. When you do tillage, you fluff, you oxidize the soil, you make what I call artificial pore space. And in in that fluffing and oxidizing the soil, you oxidize nutrients and move them more to a plant available form. So if you're doing spring tillage and you make a lot of nutrients available quickly, that plant and early growth is going to respond pretty favorably to that. Well, then you switch all of a sudden to no-till and you have less oxygen entered into the system. And in fact, what we found over the first couple of years of no-till is the soil actually becomes more dense. So you've gone from that artificially fluffed, artificial pore space that you had with tillage, the soil begins to settle and become more dense, and that dense soil holds on to water and nutrients more tightly than that fluff soil. So one of the things we did was, okay, let's make sure we have available plant nutrients going on with the planter. So we'd want a two-by-two fertilizer. Uh, maybe some goods in the in the furrow uh, with the seed, and the thoughts used to be there in the furrow, put a pretty good shot of fertilizer. But uh, over the years, we've come to learn that that shot of fertilizer in furrow is actually negatively affecting that seed. And as you, as you process that, you're, initially we were thinking, and this is what most people I think were thinking, well, let's get some of the nutrients we need in the furrow. Sure. Well, we're doing we're doing it with fertilizer, and fertilizer by definition is salt. Right. So if we put salt in the trench, and then the the seed soaks that in, we get seed injury. And though you might not notice it, looking at the crop emerging, looking down the row, uh, working with high yield growers, and over the past 
no, eight, 10 years, 12 years, I've worked with a lot of real high yield growers. And we all agree now that it doesn't take very much fertilizer in the trench until you get a yield drag that you don't go to these astronomical yield levels. Mm-hmm. So we're we're concentrating on now some other things in the trench, it's maybe just a pinch of fertilizer, and then getting a lot more fertilizer added in that two to three inches away from the row. But having some plant available nutrient available to the plant early that it was expecting to get from warmed, loosened, aerated soil with tillage was a big thing that made a big difference. And then holding on to water tighter with the soil becoming more dense. That made it that much more important to have that soil covered with some kind of residue or, or cover crop. Uh, that mulch provided more moisture available in the soil for the plant, which was having a harder time drawing up because the dense soil holds on tighter to water than the loose soil. So water, you know, you can go into no-till in the first couple of years. If you don't have a lot of residue on the surface, you're actually more prone to d- drought damage than you are with tilled ground because the soil is becoming more dense. Mm-hmm. And by having a mulch cover on top, and we did studies back in the 70s and early 80s on that, where we, if we didn't have a cover crop and the guy wanted to trans, uh, you know, go over to no-till, we'd have, make a box stall manure application or a strawy manure, get a good cover on there uh, versus almost bare ground and, and, and differences with that mulch on the surface are astronomical. Right. And that becomes a little less important after you get soil structure reinitialized, you know, going into year three, four, and five, and you start to get some structure in that soil, and you get, you know, natural pore space that's associated with soil structure, and then all those relationships start to open up, and the thing opens up. But there again, if like I said, if you don't put available nutrients and put a mulch cover on the soil to start with, uh, those are two big things that can give you a big drag. So with no-tillers, you know, you wrote wrote a comment um, on the dust storm in uh, Illinois, which I picked up on. Pretty much you're talking about soils, but so no-tillers, 50%, thousand, 50% pore space would be ideal? Yes, yes. That's the ideal soil to grow a crop in, 50% uh, solids and 50% pore space. So if you looked at that all in a 100% ratio, you'd want 45 mineral soil, about 5% organic matter, uh, 25% of the pore space should be air, and 25% should have water in for ideal growing conditions. Mm-hmm. And, and, and what I was trying to get at in that article or that response in that no-till discussion with sure. uh, the cloud of dust, we talk about, and where I started here today was with uh, the soil pH in, in transitioning right, right. to no-till. But we never stop to think Okay, we're, we're adjusting that pH with ag lime. And there are all kinds of ag lime out there. There's high magnesium lime, there's high calcium lime, uh, there's other liming materials that you can get on the market. And all we think about is what's the pH on the pH meter? Mm-hmm. And, and that can be, be so misleading and uh, it really sets us up in the wrong direction in no till just to have a correct pH. It's, it's all about how we get at the correct pH. So in other words, a calcium is going to be a soil loosener. It's a bridge chemical. It, it helps the soil develop pore space. Magnesium is kind of a flattener of the soil. Um, I learned this back in, in soil engineering in college. Uh, if you wanted to make a hard 
roadbed, uh, put put magnesium on the soil before you, as you're making a foundation, and you'll have a hard, dense uh, bed for that that roadway. Uh, and it works that same way in a field. If you get too much magnesium, that soil is going to collapse, become dense. It's going to have poor infiltration. It's going to have poor water movement through the soil. We might have perfect pH on the pH meter, but that soil is set up to fail. So there's another beginning point going to no-till. Do you have your cations right? And in the cations, I'm meaning basically magnesium, calcium, and, and potash. Are they in the right ratios and the right amounts to set that soil up so it's as easy as possible for that soil structure to reinitialize? Because mm-hmm. a third way out of whack it's very difficult for good soil structure to get reinitialized, especially in soil that's been tilled for years. Yeah. So what would be the normal in a conventional guy? Um, what would be his uh, solids versus pore space? Near 50-50 or a long ways from that? Well, the conventional tiller is going to do his tillage, and he's probably going to be a little higher on pore space right after tillage. Mm-hmm. And then as that soil begins to settle during the growing season, he's going to be trying to hit that 50-50. Sure. Uh, then till till winter with the collapse of soil, it's probably going to drop a little bit below that. And perhaps, you know, get some soil sealing from, from rainfall, seal on the top. And there's all kinds of things that can happen there. But they don't happen as much if that calcium, magnesium, potash setup is perfect. Right. That soil will stay a little bit more open and take water. And, and no-till is just critical. It's yeah. just critical. You mentioned in this comment you made to us cation balance. Can you talk about that a little? Well, we look at the cation balance in the soil as a way to have a prolific crop. So uh, you want plenty of calcium. And again, when you talk about plenty of calcium, it kind of gets confusing because there are so many soil labs use slightly different soil test methods and uh, extractants. Mm -hmm. So you kind of have to know what the numbers mean with that particular lab. Uh, But once you know that you can, you can round off your, your magnesium to a certain level, uh, your calcium to a certain level, your potash to a certain level. And then you, you start looking at the, the micronutrients, most of which are cations, your, your zinc, your iron, your copper, your manganese, you want certain levels of those to be most productive, have most productive uh, capability of the soil. And it's kind of interesting to me, many of our fungicides, historical fungicides, they were based on three elements, either zinc, manganese, or copper. And, and And I can't help but think if we'd have done a better job of having sufficient levels of zinc, manganese, and copper in our soils, uh, we wouldn't have needed those zinc, copper, and, and uh, <laughs> those fungicides. And, and as I look at soil tests across the country, uh, again and again, they're too low for the modern type yields we're trying to get. Uh, and if they're not low, the ratios with other highly correlated yield nutrients is way off. You know, we look at calcium to boron. We'd like to have that. Uh, thousand to one when you look at the parts per million, uh, zinc to, to phosphorus like a ten to one, and uh, 
you know, I, I started to question some of those numbers years ago. Uh, when did these come out? Who, who come up with these ratios? Do they work? And there's been some interesting uh, studies here uh, that the hefties in, in South Dakota have done an awful lot of work on, on the ratios. Hey, do these ratios actually make yield? And they have found that most of them really hold true. And and uh, they say they can correlate yield very tightly with with uh, phosphorus to zinc, phosphorus to copper, uh, your your calcium to boron, uh, big big time link to yield. So those are some things we look at. We want a certain baseline, and once we hit that baseline, uh, and we have here in the east, of course, a lot of livestock farms with really really high levels of phosphorus. Mm-hmm. And it's it's hard to hit that ratio with zinc because the phosphorus is so high. So we've learned to get the zinc to a certain level. And then because the ratio's off so much, we make sure that the fields that are like that, they get a, a supplement in the pop-up and the two-by-two of zinc to help balance that ratio, at least in a micro environment close to that row of, of plant. Sure. And and we, we do that kind of thing with all the nutrients if, if we have an imbalance. That's where we try to boost what we're doing with row fertilizer uh, to make that growth environment for that year. It's going to be more difficult to get the whole soil balanced. And you have to be careful with micronutrients because, you know, a crop's going to take uh, 50, 60, 70 uh, units of phosphorus out of the soil a year and less than a pound of the micronutrients and most of the micronutrients. So, if all of a sudden you lose livestock, and I've seen this happen on a number of farms, uh, you can crop the phosphorus down real fast, but the micronutrients leave so fast that it's not long till the phosphorus is down, and then your micronutrients way high out of balance. Sure. So we, we kind of have a certain level we look at for micronutrients and then stop, and then if we have to, if we're still out of balance, then we do it on a row-by-row basis. Right. How are you uh, advising your farmers to soil test, or are you doing it for them? I mean, we we get all kinds of people that say we're only taking soil samples in the first couple of inches. Other people are going deeper. What do you what do you recommend? Well, I I kind of like to see both. In other words, I think a fair amount of nutrient. Now, maybe not phosphorus, and some of the really low mobility nutrients make it to the full historical plow depth, but a lot of the nutrients make it to the full plow depth. So I kind of want to know sure. what's in them. But if you send a soil test in and you and you tell the soil test lab, this is a four inch sample, uh, the recommendations will come back based on the fact that it's a four inch sample, not a not an eight inch sample or a seven inch yeah. sample. So I, I have had instances where guys did their own soil test and they get the results back and they pulled a four inch sample. Of course, the lab test comes back, shows this enormous amount of nutrient in the soil. Well, what they really only picked up was that, that rich four inches of, of no-till soil without averaging in the next three or four inches. And so they look like they really got rich soil when what's down below that top four inches might not be so good. Yeah. So we, we look at both. I mean, I like to see a seven-inch soil sample every every uh, other time you sample at least. And... Uh, and a four-inch sample, just kind of to look for stratification. Mm-hmm. But I think kind of with our cover crops in the east and our rainfall, you know, 40, 42 inches of rain, 
I think we probably have a little less stratification than what you do in the Midwest, the upper Midwest. I know uh, Doug Beagle, our, our uh, Penn State soil specialist who's now retired, used to say uh, they could track phosphorus moving down about a half inch a year. Well, I mean, it's, it's slow, but it does go. Uh, it's not like it's all going to stay on the top inch forever. Uh, so, and then with cover crops rooting down, you know, you got to feed the roots. Some nutrients got to get down to feed those roots as they grow. So, and uh, with a good earthworm population, uh, they're constantly pulling things down in their burrows and, and uh, pulling nutrients lower and lower. So, if you got the right environment, I think you can get around stratification fairly successfully. And if if you got a good mulch cover on your no-till field. You maintain moisture to the surface better, and your roots are going to stay rooted closer to the surface much better, and you're going to pull those nutrients out of that area. We'll come back to the episode in a moment. But first, I'd like to thank our sponsor, Crop Vitality and Thiosol, for supporting today's podcast. It's as important as ever to ensure you're getting the most out of your fertilizer. Recent studies from Auburn University and Crop Vitality show when paired with a UAN solution, thiosulfate fertilizers slow down the process that causes you to lose your nitrogen into the atmosphere and groundwater. Visit CropVitality.com to explore the studies on nitrification inhibition, check out the ebook Nitrogen and the Thiosulfate Factor, and learn more about Crop Vitality's thiosulfate fertilizers. That's CropVitality.com. Now, let's get back to the conversation. I saw the other day that Penn State came out with uh, new corn nitrate side dressing rates based on no-till. What do you know about that? I have not had a chance to uh, okay. really dig into that. I have not. Well, I saw a news release from Charlie White, which was talking about um, how it made some made some differences in no-till. Okay, I won't pin you down since you haven't looked at it. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Well, I do know we work a lot with uh, Waypoint Analytical to do our soil tests. Uh, they do a good job on uh, using the Malik 3 uh, testing system. Hmm. And Malik 3 will pull out the nutrients that are available at the time of the test, and then it's a strong enough extractant that it will pull out the nutrients that would be expected to become available over the growing season. So you kind of you kind of have a good feel of the pool of nutrients you have for that crop for that year. Right. And they're also very good at giving you a uh, number of expected nitrogen release from that soil. And of course, that's sort of based on the CEC and particularly based on the organic matter content. And, and they're real good at helping you get a handle on, okay, here's my nitrogen program. What do I need to go with the roughly 100 units of nitrogen that that's, that no-till soil should release during the growing season? And so for years, so many guys have ignored that number. And I'll go on the farm and look at their corn and I'll say, well, you don't have any firing. This might be late August. You don't have any firing here clear to the ground. I said, you got more than enough nitrogen. And then we'll, we'll cut stalks, uh, do a, you know, a silage harvest. And during the silage harvest, they'll cut some stalks off to send in for a nitrate test. Sure. And they'll have some astronomical levels of nitrogen in those, in those stalks, nitrate. 
And, and I'll say, are you doing anything to adjust? I said, you're doing your calculations. You got manure, you got some fertilizer, putting some stuff on with the planter. I said, we got to start accounting for what this native in that soil now that's releasing 100 to 120 units. And you can cut that out of the program somewhere along the line because it's obvious your corn plant has a lot more nitrogen based on that stalk nitrate test at the end of the season. And, uh, and the leaves staying green pretty near down to the last leaf to the ground. I mean, there's no firing at all. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I'd like to see a couple of leaves at the bottom that are getting shaded and running out of nitrogen to fire to make sure you're not overloading the system with nitrogen, which can contribute to some loss into the environment. Let me ask you a question on something you mentioned earlier and make sure I got it right here. Are you saying a no-tiller soil test maybe every two years that maybe one year you should do a four-inch sample and the next year do a seven-inch? Yeah, yeah, I'd like to okay. see that. That gives you some good ideas of what you got going on. Yeah. Right, good. So you're working with a, a lot of Amish uh, no-tillers. I've always maintained, gosh, if you talk about time-saving and efficiency, it really pays off for the Amish people with fewer trips across the field. So you must be you must be dealing with some Amish people that are, or most of them would be pulling their planters with horses, right? Oh, yes, yes. Yeah. And that's, that's, that's a challenge now. You know, you think about that and you think, well, how do they do that? Well, when you think of the modern corn planter, uh, everything's rolling. I mean, you're cutting into the soil a couple inches. Uh, not many of them put fertilizer down in the ground more than a couple inches, and some just dribbled on top. Hmm. So really, you're only cutting, cutting a rolling disc into the ground a couple inches. You know, the depth gauge wheels sure. roll, the no-till colder if you're using that roll, the row cleaners, the closing wheels, everything rolls. So it's not really as hard to do with a team of horses as, as pulling something with a shoe on that gives you a lot of resistance. Right. Typical setup for an Amish, how many uh, rows on his planter, how many horses? Uh, usually uh, four rows would be average. Okay. Uh, yeah, four to six uh, horses. If they're only going to plant a couple acres that day, they'll go out with four. If hmm. they're going to plant more acres, they'll, they'll team up six and, and go at it. So let's talk about uh, cover crops, what's happening in your area. You've been at it a long time with cover crops. Tell me what's going on. Cover cropping is all over the place. And that's because ag in our area is becoming much more diversified. Sure. Uh, 25, 30 years ago, there were not near the, the vegetable type farms. Uh, a lot of the Amish farms now maybe have a dairy or some kind of a livestock operation. They also have vegetable production or berry production. So they're, they have a diverse number of things going on. And that offers you the opportunity to put out much more complex mixtures of cover crops, especially sure. when you have vegetables that are getting done, you know, late summer, early fall, and you have time to establish some of these more, what would you call them, exotic? They're not really exotic anymore, but cover crops that you can't get to start late in the season. Right. So there, there is a lot more of that, and there are a lot more you know, businesses you know, taking care of that business, teaching their growers what to plant, when to plant, and uh, trying to show them what kind of a benefit that brings to soil health. So it's much different than it was years ago. Uh, we still have a lot of farmers out there in cash grain. The harvest is just too late to start much other than, than rye or wheat, so there's a lot of rye put out wheat where they're going for a wheat crop if they get it in early enough 
unless a few guys put a if they get too late they'll put in wheat and if it's it looks like it's a good stand and they have a good winter for it they'll take it to grain if they don't it's just a cover crop going in the next year sure that gives them some options yeah i looked up something we had uh written from you some years ago or a few beers back and you talked about cereal rye how you were uh, reducing the seeding rates can you talk about that a little yeah uh one of the concerns, particularly on early no-tillers, is a concern about what am I going to do with all this forage I have on top of the ground? Sure. And uh, one of the ways to deal with that is to have less plants per acre. It's going to give you less forage cover and make it easier to plant through. And I, I have mixed feelings about that. I really do to this date. Um, part of it is is a balance between cost of seed and having an adequate amount of cover. Mm-hmm. So if, if I have steeply sloped land or a long slope, um, then I'll probably keep the rate up pretty high. But if I have pretty flat ground that I don't really have to worry much about it at washing, and it's got a good calcium and magnesium ratio that I know the, the water's going to go in the ground and not be running off so much, uh, there I'm a little more likely to go to a, you know, a, a two-thirds or three-quarter rate uh, uh, versus two full bushels of, of cereal rye. <laughs> but I'm I'm sort of all over the place on on recommending that because if you're terminating that rye cover early, when it's and I, we have guys that will terminate when it's basically just leaves hasn't even started the bolt yet. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you if you do that till mid June in the east. Most of that cover crop has disappeared because it was just lush green leaves. So you don't really have anything to mulch the field and hold the moisture throughout the summer, which is not a uh, not a good thing at all. But if you let the cover crop grow up and terminate at a tabletop height, just as the heads are starting to emerge and those stems have gotten somewhat lignified, there maybe you can go a little lower seeding rate because you got a whole lot more biomass grown that's going to last more through the summer sure and that's always been our goal with our growers is to not terminate the cover crop until the cover crop is about the stage you would cut it for forage for feed for livestock because it it makes the best quality feed and the highest tonnage for the livestock when it gets to be that size and that's really the same thing you're looking to do uh, feeding that soil life is to have the maximum amount of biomass, but you want a highly digestible form uh, for the soil microbes because if you let stuff get too lignified, it's going to be too much of a nitrogen drain on that soil, and that's where you can get some some yield reduction by requiring nitrogen from the soil to break that highly lignified cover crop down. We try to strike a balance of hey, when when would the dairyman cut that? for the best quality forage to feed his cow. And if that's the point, we want to terminate it. And that's going to give you enough of a lignified straw to fall over on the soil, hold the moisture without uh, being so lignified that it's going to tie up extra nutrients that cause you a deficit on nitrogen. How are your uh, clients terminating their cover crops? The majority terminate it with uh, a glyphosate product. Okay. That would be most most common. Uh, there are a few that roll, but I would say the rollers are pretty much limited to uh, folks that are growing a crop that they 
don't want the the uh, fruit to get on the ground. So if they're growing pumpkins to have a rolled, more mature rye. Mm-hmm. Uh, tomato growers are sometimes rolling cover crops so the tomatoes are setting up on top of some mulch instead of down against the soil. So some of those kind of specialty things. And then we have some growers that, not many, but a few that like to plant green. And sure. uh, uh, but I don't think I don't think that is real popular. There's some guys that do it, like doing it, but it is not caught on with the majority of the farmers. Why is that? Why isn't it caught on? scare people (laughs) yeah i think it does um you know when i would want to plant into some some like a cereal rye when it's green and i've done it already i wouldn't want the the rye to be planted particularly thick and i wouldn't want it to be overly uh staged in other words i wouldn't want it to be older than or taller than i'm looking for it to be sure because of the nitrogen penalty so and because you can't control the weather, usually when when uh, rye in this area is tabletop height, just as the heads are being seen in the boot, uh, you're talking mid-April to the 20th of April, and uh, the, the weather is extremely variable. So the ability to hit the right date to plant in that environment and get any number of acres done without the soil being too wet you just you just add a whole lot of challenges that if you get the wrong weather you can really be behind the eight ball. So once I mean terminating with with glyphosate, once you do that, uh, you kind of got your environment set up for planting and nothing nothing can go too wrong for quite a while. We've done a couple of articles in recent years with Pennsylvania farmers who are are, are cash crop guys, corn and soybeans and. Uh, they have this exactly what you were talking about. It gets too late to put in a cover crop, but some of them were going the short season corn. Is that getting popular? Or is there too much of a yield loss on 90 day, 95 day corn or not? Yeah. In the Southern half of the state, there is too much of a yield loss up North. They might be dropping down a few days. Yeah. Uh, I think what's become perhaps more popular is guys are using things in furrow that stimulate really rapid early growth. Mm-hmm. And and you can get your, your corn several leaf stages ahead of where it normally would be, which for the season puts you quite a few d- degree days ahead of where you would be for harvest. Yeah. And that moves the, the harvest date up, which moves up the ability to plant that cover crop. Right. So that that's been real popular. Um, so what are you putting as in? Far the, as going, go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. As far as going to shorter season corn, if anything, with some of these technologies that are available with with plant growth regulators and carbons and things, uh, a lot of guys are actually looking at going with a, a couple day longer season corn because they can get it ahead of where it would be uh, without those. PGRs and other additives get it ahead of a couple of leaf stages ahead so sure. they can grow a little longer season corn and get a little bit more yield. Yeah. So you're talking about putting in the furrow some plant growth regulators. Uh, are you looking at biologicals? Yes. Yes. Yeah. We use uh, carbons and it's interesting. Some some people talk uh, labile carbon. In other words, pretty fresh stuff, sugars and, and carbohydrates. Uh, there are other groups that will talk about more about the humics and the humates. And uh, what we found is it's really important to have both. 
the labile carbon is is uh, going to address. In other words, the fresh carbon is going to address nitrogen, uh, phosphorus, boron, sulfur, those kind of things. Uh, cycle them, make them more available, and then the aged carbon of uh, the humates and the humics are much better at uh, increasing availability of things like potash and copper and zinc and manganese. Uh, some of the things that you just need to get them available in the soil so the plant can take them up. So having a balance between those two, uh, we've seen been very good at, at increasing crop yield. And then plant growth regulators can be anything from plant extracts to actually isolated uh, plant growth regulators where you, you know the exact thing that's in the jug versus sea plant extracts or seaweed extracts where you have a whole host of plant growth regulators that are naturally in that that uh, kelp or sea plant, whatever it is you're extracting it from. But they're very effective at, at getting that plant to grow fast. I always like to quote Dr. Heininger from, uh, from North Carolina. He says, you know, the, in all his years of research, and he's done high-yield uh, corn research for many years, he says, without an, out exception, the fastest-growing crop is the highest-yielding crop. <laughs> so that's, right. that's been my whole thrust in, in uh, no-till is, you know, you always ended up years and years ago because you didn't do the right things with a slow-growing crop. That's part of that yield drag. If you can do the things to make it the fastest-growing crop, you have a real good chance to be a really high-yielding crop. Well, with all these biologicals, how does a farmer decide what he can use or what he should use? Well, I think there are certain classifications of products that work. Mm-hmm. So the, the labile carbons, the, the, the humates, the humics, uh, they're always going to help that plant take up nutrients. The, the sea plant extracts, I mean, it's, it's rare that you don't see an uptick in, in fast growth with those things. Uh, anything from sea plant extracts, they don't really name the plant growth regulators, but the sea plant extracts, of course, we know have them in. Two actual named plant growth regulators like gibberellic acid or GABA or any of those kind of things are on the market. Uh, they usually work well at, at getting that plant ahead of where it would normally be. So in other words, instead of depending just on moisture, the fertility, and the heat of the growing season, now we have things to put in there to improve nutrient availability and the PGRs to stimulate fast growth, that you can get some of these things to happen without all the heat that you were expecting or all the moisture you're expecting and uh, get your crop in, a, in that fast growth stage, which yields to high yield. I'm going to switch gears on you a little. A few years back, you wrote a comment for us on slug defense and then keeping insecticides and keeping them in off the residue and in the crop row. Can you elaborate on that for me? Yes, yes. What The latest research we've done on that, uh, slugs continue to be spotty but widespread. Uh, this year, they're not much of a problem because it's been so dry in the east, so I'm not getting any reports of problems. Sure. But the last several years, we've had considerable problems. And one of the things, and this is confirmed with uh, research from Penn State, that uh, certain of the insecticides that are on the seed will kill the insects that forage on slugs. Okay. So if you have those seed treatments in place, the crop comes up, and the slugs feed on the in, or feed on the crop, and then the predator insect comes along and eats Mister Slug. It gets a toxic dose, and if the if the insecticide initially hasn't killed the insect, 
the dose from eating the slug does. Mm-hmm. So it limits the control of the slug. So the thinking is, well, maybe we need to back off from these seed applieds and uh, use more inferro type stuff that maybe doesn't go systemic or go to a chemical control. And one of the things we had used quite successfully was a dribble fertilizer over top of the row. Mm-hmm. Uh, slugs cannot stand any salt at all. The fertilizer is salt. Okay. So if you take a material that you need for the crop, uh, uh, like ammonium sulfate or muriate of potash or mixtures of those two and dribble them over the row at reasonable rates, you make a salty environment that that slug does not want to crawl into. Mm-hmm. And that's been very effective. Uh, less effective where you don't do any row cleaning because you got all that residue that you know is going to protect them. They get under and have a place to go. But if you sweep the residue out of the row, and then put that salt layer on top, that fertilizer layer, uh, you can be pretty effective at, at keeping them from doing the what we call significant damage to the crop. Yeah. Well, it's interesting what you said about seed treatments because the chemical companies have been promoting more and more seed treatments. I mean, you get the seed treatments that come out of the seed, and then they got, they're telling farmers they ought to uh, treat the seed again. So, Yeah, that's that's right. They're, they're, and I think they're going to be coming out with some materials that uh, maybe meet us part way in in uh, controlling insects without chemistry in that won't hurt the slug and yet kills you know, the predator insect. I think there's maybe some chemistry coming that's going to help yeah. with that. This has been great. Have you got any thoughts that I haven't asked you about that we ought to wrap this up with? or? No, just just the the big thing that we've been seeing the past couple of years is this uh, calcium to magnesium ratio on our soils and sure. how much that helps in, in the water going into the soil, uh, percolating down through the soil. And I think, Frank, even more important is the fact when that soil is set up with the right structure physiochemically, it allows moisture to come back up to capillary work its way up if you don't have the right pore space in that soil capillary action is extremely inhibited sure. so as far as drought proofing the soil uh it's just tremendous we're working on a dairy farm here locally that got themselves into a real bad situation without really knowing what, what how it was going to happen and they, they called me in they said we got this problem our soils they've been no tillers for probably 35 years all of a sudden, their soils have become really hard, almost unworkable. Crop yields are dropping down. Uh, a lot of tip fill not happening on the ears of corn. Uh, corn not looking as thrifty as it should, and they grow a lot of silage corn. Have a rye for forage after the, the corn crop. And uh, I said, well, let me see your soil tests. And they had magnesium uh, in the 30% uh, base saturation category. I said, how did this get like this? Because uh, that's not native to the soils in our local area. Mm-hmm. And here, here what they had done, uh, they have a huge freestall barns, and they were bedding them with sand. They got tired of bedding with sand, hauling sand all the time. So they got rough cut uh, limestone. Okay. Just happened that the dolomitic rough cut limestone was cheaper than the, the high calcium, and they never gave it a thought that this would end up going through the the freestall barn out the flush system in the lagoon, irrigated on the fields and caused this real high magnesium situation. 
their soils, because that high magnesium, have gone from loose, crumbly to really hard, platy, rough soil. And uh, it just it just so confirmed to me how important those ratios are. When you see the extremes, uh, you can see what it does. And the, the average farmer doesn't notice it because he doesn't get to the extreme situation. But if he can get his soil to the ideal, he only helps himself get the proper structure in the soil. So the water goes in, goes down, and more importantly, when it gets dry, it comes it capillaries back up. And I think it's it's just critical to successful no-till. You yeah. get reinitialization of, of soil structure so much more rapidly. Uh, we struggle to do it with, you know, being in no-till and being, having cover crops and all these things we try to do to get that soil structure. And we make it so difficult in some environments physiochemically to happen. That's it for this episode of the No-Till Farmer Influencers and Innovators podcast. Thanks to Grant Troop and Frank Lesseter for that great conversation. And thanks to our sponsor, Crop Vitality and Thiosol for helping to make this podcast possible. A transcript of this episode and our archive of previous podcast episodes are both available at notillfarmer.com. For our entire staff here at No-Till Farmer, I'm McCain Vogel. Thanks for listening. Keep on no-tilling and have a great day.